want you to consider just for a moment just what a genius idea the local church really is. The local church. And by that I mean, of course, a healthy local church. But I mean, this thing right here that we're doing here, this thing called the local church, is a really, really good idea, which makes sense because this was God's idea. But the reason why the church is such a brilliant invention is because, get this, the church alone can do what the world can only dream about. What I mean is the kind of affectionate, close-knit, glad-hearted, sacrificial, loving community that the world can only imagine in a dream world is only actually possible in this body of redeemed souls called a local church, which sounds crazy. Because the reputation of churches is that they're not always very loving. It sounds crazy because here you have a bunch of people thrown together, different backgrounds, different last names, different quirks and struggles and sins, totally different personalities. Here you have a bunch of people, to be totally honest, would have probably never chosen each other as friends, think Jews and Gentiles, and yet here they are. Here they are. And they love one another with glad-hearted sacrificial, and in our case, supernatural love and affection. At least they're supposed to. And what that does is raise the question, doesn't it? Why is love so central to the mission of the church? Why this, of all things? Why not miracles and supernatural powers. Why love? Why is this so central to the mission of the church? Why does the New Testament make such a big, radical, massive deal about love in the local church, in and through our relationships to one another? The question is, what does that communicate and portray to the world when a church loves in a local church the way it should? I'll tell you what it does. Listen carefully. When the body of Christ loves, when we love one another the way we should, two things begin to happen. Number one, we become a picture of Christ to the world. And number two, we become a preview of the kingdom to the world. That's what happens. When a local church loves one another the way the Bible commands, we become a picture of Christ to the world, and we become a preview of the kingdom to the world. We display and portray and exhibit and reveal what Jesus Christ is like, and we reveal and portray and exhibit and preview what the kingdom will be like. That is what's at stake in our love to and for one another. And I'll have you know that that affectionate, sacrificial love that portrays Christ and previews the kingdom is exactly what we see in our text this morning. And any Sunday, every Sunday is a great, perfect Sunday to talk about love and what it looks like in the local church. But the reason why we are today is because we have paused in our series on Isaiah to talk about the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines. We've had four sermons before this. This is the last. And when we say disciplines, I don't merely mean being more disciplined. Rather, I mean the spiritual disciplines of grace. The spiritual disciplines of grace. And by that, I mean the most meaningful tasks that a human being can perform. By that, I mean the, the most significant activities in your life commanded by God. And the reason why they are is because they are the foundational means that God has put in place through which his plan of salvation unfolding in the world is executed. These are essential. These are indispensable. These are non-negotiable. You understand there are no pursuits in life that excel these. There are no commitments to which you are called that surpass these. Human beings are at the apex of their greatness when they give their lives to the spiritual disciplines of grace. I said it before, the elders and I are persuaded from 
the word of God, that the church of God brings glory to God when the saints of God know how to pray to God and read the word of God and by grace know how to love one another for the glory of God. And around here, loving one another, we call redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships, or what the Bible calls fellowship, or the one another's, and I'm counting that as a spiritual discipline. And by redemptive relationships, all we mean by that is simply a, a summary way to describe all that the Bible says our relationships with one another should and must be. And what should our relationships with one another be like? Well, you know exactly what they should be like because the New Testament gives us at least 59 descriptions of what they should be like. Pray for one another. Speak the truth to one another. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Rebuke one another. Love one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Conf uh, be devoted to one another. Bear one another's burdens. And on and on it goes. The New Testament is profoundly concerned that our relationships to one another should be intentional, proactive, deliberate efforts to invest the word of God into one another's lives. That your spiritual growth is my priority. That my spiritual growth is your priority. That my holiness is your business. And your holiness is my business. That long-term health and impact of any church literally depends on if we have these kinds of relationships with one another or not. An affectionate, radical, sacrificial, supernatural love that portrays Christ and previews the kingdom is exactly what's in our text this morning. Because love, you understand, redemptive relationships, what the Bible calls the one another's, they are a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. So here we go, our final sermon on the disciplines of grace. And this morning, I want you to see 12 tangible ways. Yes, that's right, I have a 12-point sermon. Cancel lunch plans. It's over. Your afternoon is taken. 12 tangible ways to love one another with radical affection. 12 tangible ways to love one another with radical affection that make this church a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. That's where we're going. And you're like, is he serious? Twelve tangible ways to love one another with radical affection, to make this church a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Let's begin in 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. Look what John says. Notice very carefully what he says. He says, but whoever should have the goods of the world and should behold his brother having a need, and yet should close his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, or in literally, nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now you can see it here. He's talking about love in really tangible, practical ways, isn't he? But you also notice the first word of the sentence is a contrast. But... Whoever should have the goods of the world. And the contrast indicates that he's in the middle of an argument, that he's contrasting this with something that he just said. And what he just said is, goes all the way back to verse 11, because what you have to understand is that verses 11, uh, beginning in verse 11, he is giving a theology of love. 11 through 18 is a theology of love, what it looks like, what it means, how that is displayed. And you have to understand that verses 17 and 18 are the practical application of his theology of love. And the question is, what is this theology of love? Well, let's review. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, here's the first point in his theology of love. He says that we should love one another, which is totally obvious. And yet the question is, what is love, according to the Bible, but sacrificial affection for one another? What is love, according to the Bible, but you finding your highest joy and helping other people find their highest joy in Jesus Christ? What is love, according to the Bible, but to make tangible for people the most glorious and beautiful person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself through our lovingly intentional word-centered counsels and encouragements? That is love. 
But then his next point in his theology of love, verses 12 through 13, it's actually a warning. That we should love one another knowing that no matter how loving and compassionate we may be, it doesn't solve all of our problems. It doesn't. That the world is still going to hate you just like Cain hated Abel and slit his throat precisely because he was righteous. But then speaking of love, notice what love, loving others, proves about our soul's condition. Verse 14, his next point in his theology. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? Do do you see what he says? Because we love the brothers, he says, because we love the church, because we love other believers, if we love them... What then does that prove about our lives? Notice what he says. Well, what does it prove about the true condition of our soul? Notice that we have passed out of death into life. (laughs) Meaning what? Meaning that love for one another specifically, love for other believers, blood-bought comrades and family in Christ, love for one another, get this, is the evidence that our salvation is not a hoax, but is authentic and real. That's what he said. That love is the proof of life. That regeneration results in radical affection. That a life of self-denying, others-serving, Christ-imitating love is the undeniable evidence that we have been awakened and saved by sovereign grace. Do you feel this, right? The massive premium the Bible places upon our love for one another and what it means and what it displays about the reality of our souls. But the opposite is also true, isn't it? If loving other people proves that we are saved, what then does not loving other people also prove? Look at the end of verse 14. The one who does not love, on the other hand, makes it absolutely clear that he abides in death. In other words, the person who does not love in the way that God commands proves themselves that they are spiritually dead and they need to be saved. You can see it in verse 15. Look what he says. Still talking about that person. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And yet, of course, that raises the question, what what does it mean to hate other other people? What does it mean to be a spiritual murderer? What, What is this? And here's what it is. It looks like this. A murderer, a spiritual murderer, listen carefully, is a need ignoring, self exalting, risk avoiding, record keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting person whose primary concern is their own private comfort and convenience, no matter the cost it brings to other people. That is hatred. That is murder. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel this. A murderer, a spiritual murderer, is need-ignoring self exalting, risk-avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, and a church-neglecting person whose primary concern is their own private comfort at the expense of other people. That is hatred. That is murder. I mean, you understand, if love is to do what's best for others, no matter the cost to you, then hatred is to do what's best for you, no matter the cost to them. That is hatred. That is murder. The question is, how are you doing so far? I mean, other than sermons on prayer and evangelism, nothing quite hits below the belt than sermons on love. I mean, loving one another just punches us in the most vulnerable part of our souls. And the reason why is because it is so profoundly opposite of our default inclinations, isn't it? 
Let me see, you understand, love is not natural. This is profoundly supernatural. Because why? Because to love is to die. It's to die to self, to die to comfort, to die to conveniences, to, to die to our preferences, to die to our agendas. Love is to die a thousand deaths a day if necessary to do what's best for other people. And what is best for other people is the supreme, superior enjoyment of Jesus Christ above all other things in this life. And so therefore... Love is your ambition to help other people delight and enjoy Jesus Christ above all other treasures and pleasures. That is love. You understand, all our lives are, are a conduit through which the beauty and sufficiency of Christ is mediated to other people through our word-centered counsels and comforts and encouragements. That is love. Speaking of the beauty of Christ, John completes his theology of love by reminding us, listen carefully, that the most breathtaking act of love in history literally sets the precedent for our lives. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we then ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is incredible, isn't it? Because what John reveals is that the greatest display of love in history comes down to us loaded with application. Just as Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinful people hard to love, so we are to lay down our lives for those very same people hard to love, namely one another. And that brings us to John's application, his application of his theology of love. John, help us here. Help us understand this. What does it actually look like to lay down our lives for other people? What does it mean to lay down our lives for other people just as Christ did that for us? Does he mean that if a gunman walks into the church, we fight to the front of the line and we take the bullet? Is to lay down your life for one another means that, that if, if you, you push someone out of the way and you let the bus hit us instead? John, is that what you mean by lay down your life for one another? And I think if John were here, he would say, well, of course it means that. Of course it means that. Love is to fight for the front of the line, to take the first bullet. Love is to push them out of the way and let the bus hit you instead. But you understand Love is not only that. Love is more than that. You see, love isn't just the ultimate sacrifice. Love is every other kind of sacrifice that leads up to death also. In other words, love is any need that arises in the church that you have the capacity to meet. Here's his application of theology, verses 17 and 18 again. Just like Christ did, we should lay down our lives for, other, for one another. But whoever should have the goods of the world and should behold his brother having a need and yet should close his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And there it is. That's, that's John's application of his theology of love. It is short, it is sweet, it is simple, and yet it is profoundly supernatural. The text breaks down into two parts. Part one, this is in your notes if you've got them. Part one, authentic love is selfless generosity. Authentic love is selfless generosity. You can see it there in verse 17. Here is what it looks like to lay down our lives for one another. Rather, here's what it does not look like. You notice that John gives a scenario, whoever has the goods of the world and should behold his brother having a need and should close his heart against him. 
So you see what John does here, too. He uses a negative to reinforce the positive. He uses something cruel and ugly to emphasize the beautiful. He poses a hypothetical but not so hypothetical situation of someone who has everything they need, right? They have the goods of the world. They behold someone who does not have everything they need. And notice very carefully, notice that the person who has a need is not some random homeless person begging on the street, but who is it? What does the text say? It is a brother. It is his brother. Not his brother by physical birth, but his brother by spiritual birth. In other words, you know this, that word brother is code for church, isn't it? Our spiritual family adopted by the Father through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. Because you understand, we are connected, you and I. We are connected, not by our own blood, but by the blood of the Lamb. What binds you and I together is not the same last name, but the name of the one before whom every knee will bow and tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. His name is what binds us together. And you understand, according to the Bible's logic, according to the Bible's logic, what that should create between you and I is something that we don't share with anybody else, namely a kind of allegiance and affection and commitment to do what's best for one another, even at great cost to ourselves. I mean, I'm not saying I'm great at this because I most certainly am not. But you understand, don't you, that the kind of life that in the, in, the, in the body of the church that the Bible envisions is something so unique and out of this world that it literally has the potential to save people out of the world? That what determines if we finish the mission out there depends on how we love one another in here? Consider for a moment the first church ever in history, the first church on the planet, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Remember them? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Listen very carefully. Here's the kinds of things that went on in that church. It says, and they were devoting themselves continually to four things. One, to the doctrine of the apostles. Two, to fellowship. Three, to the breaking of bread. And four, and to prayers. In other words, they studied doctrine and theology every day. They did redemptive relationships. They ate together in one another's homes, in something kind of like small groups. And they prayed every single day. This is what the first church on the planet was radically committed to. And then, listen carefully, the text goes on to explain, and this is in your notes if you've got them, all those who had believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them as all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And you hear this text and you think, well, okay, the church did a lot. The church was connected, the church was thriving, but the question is, where's the community outreach? Where's the evangelism? There's no vision here. They're not doing anything. They're not reaching anybody. There's no outward focus. There's no impact. No one is getting saved. And yet, verse 47 says this. And the Lord was adding to the number of those who were being saved day after day after day. Do you see it? What was happening inside the church was so compelling and irresistible. It was so profound and supernatural that when people peeked inside and saw the robust life happening inside the church, what they saw was a community so compelling that they could not help but want to be a part of it. And they got saved. 
What's my point? How does this relate to 1 John 3? My point is all of that is what John means by brother. To be a part of a blood-bought battalion of souls. That was the kind of thing that should be going on in this scenario. And yet what we see, what John paints for us in chapter 3, verse 17, is the opposite of that. Here's someone in the church who has, who beholds a blood-bought comrade and fellow heir of the kingdom in the church who does not have. He has a need, John says, and it could be financial, it could be material, it could be emotional, and it's definitely spiritual because all physical, material, emotional needs connect to the spiritual. And like what happens to us every single Sunday in the providence of God, this hypothetical person in the text is presented with an ecclesiological fork in the road. He has seen the need of his brother. And what is seen cannot be unseen. And and now he has a choice. He could die to his comforts. He could die to his conveniences. He could die to his lunch plans, his feelings, his agendas, and he can invite this person and their mess into his life and seek to make tangible for him the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, or or he could close his bowels against him and not do anything at all. And this not-so-hypothetical guy chose option B. Look again at verse 17. Whoever should have the goods of the world and should behold his brother having a need and should close his bowels against him. How then does John ask, does the love of God abide in him? And, you know, the reason why I keep calling this a not so hypothetical scenario is because you and I, every single Sunday, are faced with two different ways that we could do church. Two different ways that we could do church when we show up on a Sunday morning. We can play it safe. We can keep our distance. We can be pleasant but private. And like the army used to say, don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask about the needs of others. And certainly, certainly do not tell anybody about your own. It's called playing church. That's sin. That's what John is describing here. And notice how John says the man responds when he sees his fellow heir of the future kingdom in need. John says that he closes his heart against him. And I'll have you know that that Greek word heart is actually the Greek word bowels. It's the word bowels, guts, in other words. And it's a little crass, which is why our English Bibles don't translate it that way. But you know that almost physical pain that you get near the groin area when you see something painful or brutal or gut-wrenching or sad? Do you know what I'm talking about? The Greek, the Greek language had a word for that pain, and it's this word right here. And so you know what this bowel-closing risk-avoiding, need-ignoring, comfort-preserving moment is that John is describing. Do you know what this is? We've all been there, and we've all done it, unfortunately. It's the moment of the excuse. It's the moment of a dozen rationalizations We're in a split second that we can see that to go down that path with them, that to love that person, to really love that person requires so much more than simply writing them a check, but rather it is an investment of our very lives into theirs. Somehow, somehow, some way we know intuitively in a split second all the comforts we're going to sacrifice All the free time and me time that's going to slip away. Should we invest in that person? All the extra responsibility that that relationship is going to pile at our feet. And in a moment, faster than the speed of light, we decide that the cost is just too great. And that moment of rationalization where we decide that the cost to love them in the way the Bible describes is too much for us is exactly what John means when he says they close their bowels against them. Compassion is your pain in my heart which moves me to deeds of comfort on your behalf. 
And the, John, the scenario that John presents here is the opposite of that. Now, don't misunderstand. Not one person can meet all the needs of the church. That's why you have to have a whole church be on board with this and do this. And no one is saying that you can't be closer to some people than you will be to others. I mean, the natural rhythms of life are naturally going to direct you to the paths of some people rather than to others. So no one's talking about anything weird or forced or synthetic or superficial here. All I'm saying is what John is indicating is that the church is so much more than a Sunday morning and some programs. You understand what this is, is ownership. This is ownership, a sense of weight and joyful responsibility to be a conduit of the living Christ to one another's lives through our word-centered counsels and comforts and encouragements, and yes, if need be, even rebukes. The question is, do you see habits in your life of closing your bowels to the needs of other people? Have you let legitimate tasks, legitimate tasks, things that you really should and must do, have you begun to let those crowd out authentic care for actual people? Have excuses for not investing in one another's spiritual health and growth become more persuasive to you? That it's easier and easier to justify not being connected to other people that it's easier and easier to justify not being vulnerable to other people. Because think about it, every Sunday morning, every small group, you are interfacing with people who have real needs, don't you? Real burdens, real struggles, real fears, real anxieties. And you understand every single one of those things can only actually be ultimately fulfilled by Christ. Agreed? You understand, we show up on a Sunday morning or a small group and we are discouraged. We are distracted. We are frazzled. We are fearful. We are anxious. We are burdened. We are loaded with a thousand cares that that seek to pull our gaze away from Christ. And when we walk into the building on a Sunday morning, and we are literally walking into a house of pain. And yet also, if we're doing it right, a house of healing. Because you understand, we are literally called to be agents. We are literally called to be instruments who mediate the health and healing of Christ to one another's souls through his word. That's what a redemptive relationship is. And so the next time you detect some kind of need or the next time you're in a conversation that's been fun but superficial enough, instead of avoiding the awkward, instead of avoiding the uncomfortable, instead run into the awkward. Plunge yourselves into the uncomfortable. Be the first to be vulnerable. Risk keeping things safe. And you just ask them. You just, you just, you just ask them, how are they doing? How are they really actually doing in their pursuit of Christ? How they're doing in their struggles with sin and the residual powers of their fallen flesh? Sin is real. Struggle is real. We should know about that for one another. Ask them about their challenges and triumphs, spiritual challenges and triumphs. Ask them how Christ is at work in their lives. Ask them what they're excited about. What what God is teaching them in and through the sacred text. Ask them to what they are they striving. Ask them how is marriage. Ask them how is parenting. Ask them about the unbelievers in their lives. Ask them how you can pray for them. Ask them how you can help them. And a thousand other questions that you really, really need to ask. And they really, really need to ask you. And you just decide in that moment that no matter what it is, the extra responsibility, that that relationship is going to pile at your feet, that you are going to embrace it and see it through to the end. That's a redemptive relationship. That's what John is talking about, and that is love. But then John goes and does a bit of a gut check. You see, dead men tell no tales, and the patterns of our lives tell no lies. 
See, if we see bowel closing, need ignoring, risk avoiding, self-protecting habits and patterns of seeing real needs in the church and then turning around to focus only on ourselves, the question is, what question then should we be asking ourselves? In other words, if we see habits of closing our bowels to needs of other people in the church, what question should we be asking about our own souls? And John does us a real solid, and he gives us the very question that we should be asking. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. But whoever should have the goods of the world and should behold his brother having a need and should close his bowels against him, how, John asks, does the love of God abide in him? And that's the issue for John. His whole point in verses 11 through 18 is to help us see that the inevitable ripple effects of being born again is authentic love and care for the souls of people, and in particular, the souls of people who are in our very own churches. And to the degree that we don't actually see that in our lives, John asks, how does the love of God abide in them? Meaning how? How could one truly be the recipient of, sov- of the sovereign love of God that saved them from eternal woe and despair and not have any inclination to then extend that love? How? How could one be the recipient of the glorious, sovereign love of God that executed and crushed his own son in our place and not have any instinct to then reflect that love to other people. Do you see? His question is gracious, but it's rhetorical. His point is, should we see bowel-closing, need-ignoring habits in our lives, we have every right to question if our salvation is authentic. If we really are born again, if we really are connected to the vine, if we really do belong to Jesus Christ, and I just want you to know, I'm just going to level with you here, if you have any suspicion at all that you might not actually be born again, you might not actually know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not actually in Christ connected to the vine, you just need to know that God's gracious offer of love in his son still stands at this very moment, doesn't it? That at this very second that Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of the Father ready to save, full of pity, full of love, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who calls out to him for mercy and grace. And so if you have not done so this morning, won't you cry out to him for mercy and grace? That's part one. Authentic love is selfless generosity, which brings us to part two. Authentic love is supernatural activity. Authentic love is supernatural activity. Because really, and we wrestled with the question when we went through 1 John before, but the question is why? Why is love such a big deal to the Apostle John? Put it this way, why on earth does he spend two and a half chapters of a five-chapter letter describing what love is and looks like in the local church and in people's lives? Why does he do that? And I think he does that because authentic, biblical love, get this now, is just too supernatural to be faked. It's just too supernatural to be faked. Holiness and obedience can be faked a little easier, I suppose. That is if you don't pry and ask too many questions and keep your distance from people's lives. One can pass themselves off as moral and ethical and decent and zealous. Just think Mormons, for instance. But John singles out love in particular because if it's real, it's just too open. It's just too involved in the lives of others. It's just too proactive. It's too deliberate. It's too intentional. It's too supernatural to be faked or forged, or at least faked or forged for very long. 
And in verse 18, he finishes his expose on biblical love, and he gives us a, a paradigm. He gives us a paradigm of practical love and, and what it looks like and, and how it works, and that if we do that, it's a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. There's the paradigm. The practical paradigm of supernatural love. And you can see that John does his favorite thing in his letter to do, namely to make a point, namely that he says what something isn't first so that he can say what something is. And what he does here is he gives us a wrong and a right way to love. A wrong and a right way to love. Here's the wrong way to love. Look at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word nor in Tongue. Don't love like that, he says. Don't, don't do that. That's not real love. That's not authentic love. That's not supernatural love. That doesn't meet the criteria of authentic, biblical, affectionate, sacrificial love, which means what exactly? Because I'll have you know that some people take this to mean, they misconstrue this verse to mean that love doesn't actually speak at all. That love is a kind of silent benevolence. In other words, you can love people or you can speak truth to them, but you can't do both. And they misconstrue the verse so badly to think that if you say anything at all, it is not love. I'm just going to love them. I'm not, I'm not going to speak truth to them. I'm just going to love them. Do you see? Do you see the problem with that? The problem with that is because the Bible never, ever, ever pits showing love and speaking truth to one another as if they were opposite, as if they were incompatible. You see, John's point here is not, not that love doesn't use words, but that love doesn't use words only. That love isn't superficial cliches and platitudes. That love is not some phony Christian lingo that sounds good on the surface but has no substance underneath. Because love, you understand, love does speak. It does speak. And as you're about to see, almost every single manifestation of love in the entire New Testament manifests itself through speaking words. Encourage one another, instruct one another, comfort one another, speak the truth to one another, admonish one another, warn one another, encourage one another. It goes on and on. Speak the truth. I mean, comfort, teach, instruct. I mean, John does not mean some kind of silent benevolence that, that never does any speaking. Rather, love is never content with mere lip service that isn't also willing to do whatever it takes to do what's best for that person. That's what he's after. Because look at what he says. Look what he says love is at the end of verse 18. It's not... Doing or speaking, it is doing and speaking. Look what he says. Little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do you hear that? Deed and truth. Deed and truth. You see, love is neither, is not either doing or speaking, it's doing and speaking. Love is deeds and words. It is serving and speaking. It is visual and it is vocal. Because you understand, every single time John uses that word, aletheia, in his letter, he always means biblical truth, like literal truth from the pages of Holy Scripture. And, and you understand, this is very practical then. Because what this means then is that to be skilled in love, you must be filled with truth. To be skilled in love, you must be filled with truth. The word-filled person is the love-filled person. And it cuts both ways. The love-filled person is the one who is a word-filled person. And the reason for that is because the word of God is the power that produces genuine love for the souls and needs of other people. 
You understand, the more you become enthralled by the sovereign love of God and the saving redemptions of Jesus Christ and, and the splendor of eternity, the more you will give and love and serve and pour out your life for other people. And what that means is if you want to grow in love, and I know you do, then you must grow in truth. Meaning, you got to read your Bible. And by that I mean, you must have proactive, purposeful, glad-hearted, meaningful, satisfying meditation on the Bible. You read that thing again and again and again. You read it up and down, up and down until you can almost see the words on the page as you close your eyes. And when that happens, we will love. And according to John, true, authentic love is in deed and in word. And that is a paradigm. A perfect paradigm of love that portrays who Christ is and previews the kingdom. And that brings me now to my agenda. My 12-point sermon. 12 tangible ways to love with radical affection that makes this church a picture of Christ and a preview of the kingdom. And they're all familiar to you and they're going to go fast and they're in your notes. And let's call these expressions of love. Expressions of love. Expression number one, to love in deed and word, get this, is to be hospitable to one another. To show hospitality to one another. Romans 12, 13, 1 Peter 4, 9. You understand, hospitality is a really, really big deal in the Bible. You knew that, right? It's a really big deal. And what is hospitality? What is hospitality but the grace of of Christ in edible and domestic form where we have people into our homes and we share our very lives with them. And I'll just have you know that acts of hospitality are way, way more effective, a thousand times more effective for the Great Commission than merely doing some programs to win the crowds. Show hospitality. Expression number two. Number two, to love in deed and word is to be of the same mind toward one another. To be of the same mind toward one another, Romans 12, 16. In other words, to be of the same mind with one another means we want the same thing as one another and we want the same thing for one another. And what we all want, in fact, what should be the deepest conscious longing in our souls that should drive how we interact with one another is that we would all love Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's what I want for you. That is what you want for me. And therefore, you must pray and you must plead and you must strive to make your highest ambition for one another, one another spiritual growth at the top of your priorities. That my holiness is your business and that your holiness is my business. Do I, am I saying that right? I feel like I've gotten that statement wrong twice already. You know what I mean. My holiness, your business, your holiness, my business. Expression number three. To love in deed and word is to bear one another's burdens. To bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? The thought of having someone in the local church come alongside you and bear your burdens. And that sounds like something that we would want to do for others. But I'll have you know the context of that verse, believe it or not, is when you see a prevailing sin in somebody's life. If, if you don't want to talk to people about issues in your life, you have to explain to me why Galatians 6, 1 and 2 was there. Nobody's talking about headhunting or something mean and nasty because Paul says that should you see someone caught in any trespass, you are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. You don't talk to other people about it. You don't ignore it and hope that it goes away. You talk to them about it. You restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And what does Paul call it? When we graciously but truthfully and honestly talk to one another about sin we see in their lives, he calls it bearing their burdens. Why? Because killing sin, if you haven't noticed, is really, really hard. And we need help from one another to fight the fight and bear the weight. Expression number four. Number four, to love in deed and word is to bear with one another. 
to bear with one another. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Tommy preached on this last week. Paul says, put on, therefore, as the chosen of God, literally the bowels of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here it is, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as you also should do. Now, what does it mean to bear with one another? Is it that fist-clenched, tightly-jawed seething that does not punch them in the face, although we would really like to? No, no, to bear with one another, get this now, is patience with one another's fallenness. That's bearing with one another. Patience with one another's fallenness. In other words, to bear with one another, get this now, is a compassionate objectivity. A compassionate objectivity when you know that when you get hurt or burned or snubbed and overlooked and all of those things are going to happen to you, by the way. They are going to happen. I mean, let's be really honest about what this is here, this Sunday morning gathering. You understand what this is here is a weekly reunion of a bunch of ex-cons and former murderers. 1 John 3.15. The church is a recovery room of ransomed sinners and recovering idolaters, and that means that hurt feelings are inevitable. But you see, to bear with one another is a compassionate objectivity that understands that growth is hard and sanctification is slow, and it is a commitment to love and help people grow, even if there isn't perfect reciprocation, and there will never be perfect reciprocation. Expression number five, to love in deed and word is to build up one another, to build up one another. Romans 14, 19. And to build up, you understand, means to edify, means to strengthen. That's actually an ancient Greek construction term. Paul said in Romans 14, 19, he says, let us pursue the things that make for the edification of one another. Edification, strengthening, what does this mean? It means to strengthen and reinforce and buttress one another with cedar, plank, red, brick, iron, rebar, theology. That's, that's what that means. We must do that. You see, fluffy things don't help. Soft, non-theological cushions of warmth and platitudes and cliches are a help to nobody's soul. Rather, we must picture one another as dilapidated buildings. And your job for one another is to reinforce their run-down souls with bricks of biblical and theological truth. We must build one another up. Expression number six. Number six, to love indeed in word is to confess your sins to one another. To confess your sins to one another, James 5.16, and actually this is two for the price of one. James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You understand, to make this work, we must develop a culture of vulnerability. A culture of vulnerability. Because you understand, private Christianity, listen very carefully, private Christianity is no Christianity at all. The starting point of all redemptive relationships is to go to someone and to show them the deepest, darkest part of your souls and ask them to pray for you. And what does James say happens when we confess and pray? Our sins get healed. And so what that means is, is if you have prevailing sins in your life which you cannot seem to overcome, it's very likely that you have not yet confessed them. Expression number seven. Number seven, we're almost done. To love indeed in word is to comfort one another. To comfort one another, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, comfort one another with these words. Did you know that? Words. Comfort with words. Comfort comes through the means and instruments of words. Which words? Wasn't well, it very interesting that in that context, the words about which Christ was speaking were words of eschatology. The actual context, if you believe in this, was the rapture. 
That's what he's talking about. And just like we've said, as we've preached through Isaiah over and over again, you got to know this stuff. you got to know eschatology because it is profoundly practical. It is the instrument given to the saints to comfort one another. As we grow weary in a fallen world, we must comfort one another. Expression number eight. Number eight, to love in deed and word is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. To be devoted in brotherly love, Romans 12, 10, which is weird, right? Because I'm not related to you. I'm not your family. You're not responsible for me. But I am your family. And I am related to you. And you are responsible for me. Cain was wrong. He was his brother's keeper. You are my keeper. And so you have to understand is that we are extended, adopted family through the sin-bearing death of Christ. And what, must, what that must create in this room is a sense of profound urgency for one another's spiritual health and growth. And small groups, by the way, are the perfect place to forge those family bonds. Expression number nine. Number nine, to love in deed and word is to encourage one another. To encourage one another. And by that I mean Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. One of the most encouraging and urgent loving verses in the entire New Testament. The writer says, take care, brothers. Take care. Lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another more, all the more, as you see the day approaching, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, and that's a huge if, if we hold fast our assurance firm until the end. Do you see how the writer to the Hebrews defines encouragement? It is not just kind of rubbing people's shoulders and merely saying that it's going to be okay. It is coming alongside them and helping them persevere in their faith firm until the end. Because if we don't do that for one another, we will drift into apostasy. So we must care for one another. We must not let one another be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Expression number 10. Number 10, admonish one another. Admonish one another. And what is it to admonish? Colossians 3.16. It's to caution. It's to reprove. It's to warn. And it is even to rebuke if need be. And let me just say, love does not love to rebuke. But it will do so if it must. Because love loves too much to let those we love live a lie or live in sin. Agreed? Expression number 11, home stretch. To love indeed in word is to speak the truth to one another in love. To speak the truth to one another in love, Ephesians 4.15, perhaps the most impactful church verse in the entire New Testament to me. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, literally truthing in love, we are to grow up in him in all things who is the head. That is Christ. And what does that mean to speak the truth to one another in love? It doesn't merely mean being honest. Your breath is bad. Your clothes are ugly. No. To speak the truth in love is intentional, word-centered investment into the lives of other people. And perhaps the most practical of all, expression number 12, and then we're done, to love in deed and word is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, the writer says this, and then we're done. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider carefully how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Here it is. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, even as is the habit of some, but rather exhorting one another. And this so much more, even as you see the day approaching. In other words, friends don't let friends treat church as optional because it's not it's not optional and the reason why church is such a big deal is is not because we get gold stars for good behavior 
good attendance. That's just not the issue at all. It's because our job description for one another, our, our ministry to one another on a Sunday morning, what the church is designed to do is to love in deed and in word. And when we love like that, we become a picture of Christ and we become a preview of the kingdom. And when we love like that, we become a church that changes the world. So let's pray, shall we? Let's pray to become a church like that. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for the church and what it is. It is not a club. It is not a society. It is not merely a, a community of people where we have shared interests. Well, Lord, we thank you that the church is a battalion of blood-bought souls, hand-picked by you, Father, before time began, and then given to your Son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. Here we are, O oh Lord, a chosen, predestined, singled out, and selected people called the church. And you have granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in your Son. And Lord, you desire, your design for us is not that we would be isolated, individualistic, doing our own things separately, but we would be a corporate body together, prizing and praising and portraying and proclaiming you together. Oh Lord, help us to grow in health as a church. Help us to grow in redemptive relationships. Help us to do the one another's. Help us, oh Lord, to own the spiritual growth of one another as among our highest priorities. We give you thanks in advance for the work that you are doing and you will continue to do, always and only for the glory of your Son in whose name we pray.